Hello, everyone, or anyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Bake It Off podcast. My name is Addie, and I will be your host for our baking adventure, our baking discussions. And I decided to start Bake It Off because I love to bake, and I love to eat what I bake, and I love to talk about what I bake, and I like to talk about it while I'm eating it. So, I won't do a lot of talking and eating at the same time on this podcast, but I will do uh, a podcast version of two of the ways that this tends to manifest in my daily life, which is either I end up talking like I'm on the Great British Bake Off while I'm in my kitchen to myself as I'm baking, or I end up judging whatever I'm eating and talking about it like I'm a judge on the Great British Bake Off, which, as you can imagine, is pretty insufferable to anybody who's not interested in baking or anything else that I have to say. So I'm hoping to send this out into the ether and maybe find some people who would like to listen to somebody talk about baking, talk about the science behind baking, talk about the history behind baking, just talk about eating cake, all that good stuff. So welcome to Bake It Off. I think this is a great time to introduce a podcast like this because a lot of people have been taking on baking for the very first time. It's um, a global pandemic. As many of you may know, it's August of 2020. The world's in sort of a bleak state at the moment, and a lot of people have been turning to their ovens and their cookbooks as a way to pass the time, as the way to find some enjoyment in the world. Um, and to all of you for whom this is the first few months of your baking adventure, I say welcome. I am by no means a professional baker. I'm a home baker. I'm an amateur baker. I just love to do it. Um, as one of my very favorite contestants on the Great British Bake Off, can you tell that I watch it a lot? His name is Glenn. He was a giant bear of a man who just loved to bake. And what he said was, baking's not really food on the table. Baking's a bit of love. And I agree. So I hope that everybody here will enjoy that part of baking as much as I do. Probably the best thing that I've ever baked, the most professional quote-unquote thing that I've ever baked was a wedding cake. I've made three wedding cakes for three different people, uh, very different styles, none of them terribly fancy. I did not use fondant. I don't like fondant for the most part unless it's made with marshmallows, but those were probably the fanciest thing I've ever done. Otherwise, I like to bake pie, which is what we'll actually be talking about today. I like to bake cakes. I would love to get into more bread baking. It's not something I have a ton of experience with at the moment, so perhaps that's something I will uh, discover with you <laughs> as we continue on. But I love to make lots of things that I love to eat. I love cookies, all that good stuff. And today we're going to delve into pie a little bit, like I said, and hopefully get a feel for what an episode will feel like. I'd love to talk about the history a little bit, and I would love to talk about the science behind what I'm discussing because I find that the science is really the key to freedom with baking. So many people always say to me, oh, it's so great that you love to bake, but I really only love to cook because I can do what I want. I can experiment. And when you bake, there's no wiggle room. What if you don't use the right amount of baking soda or you don't do this or you don't do that? And my response is always, well, you can be just as creative with baking. You just have to be okay with throwing it all in the bin and saying it's disgusting and just having a failure here and there, which I have had many and will again, I'm sure. So let's go back to what we will be talking about today. 
which is pie. Pie means different things to many people all across the world and has meant very different things over the past several centuries that it's been around. I will talk about it a little bit in that in its history. We will discuss where it came from, what corners of the earth it all came together in. But there are lots of different kinds of pies. What I want to focus on eventually is American pies. So mostly American fruit pies today. We'll kind of have a little chat about soggy bottoms. And we'll start with what, and then we'll also delve into pastry. That's the other part I want to sort of introduce. Pastry is a huge, huge topic, and I'm sure I will discuss it at length in different episodes, but we'll just get a little introduction to it. And for those of you who don't use that term often, I like to use it because it makes me sound fancy pants. (laughs) And also, I just think it's better, it's easier to refer to the whole idea of pastry than just by calling it pie dough, for instance. So in the U.S., what we call pie dough, what goes on the outside of our pies, is also a type of pastry. And so when you just call it pie dough, you're sort of narrowing that range. And when you call it pastry, you're opening it up to everything that it could be. And also it just makes you sound really posh and sort of lovely, which is why I like to say it. And it makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about. My my pastry experience is just born of practice and a lot, a lot of research online as to why, what happens when you use it. But let's talk a little bit about what pie means to different parts of the world. So right now, if you said, I want some pie in several different places in the world, you would get different results. If you went to England or somewhere in the UK and you said, oh, I'd really fancy some pie right now, you would probably end up with something savory with crust all around it, with pastry all around it. That's more of a meal type idea. If you came to the U.S., you'd probably end up with a dessert pie, something with fruit in it, maybe something with a creamy center, usually only with crust on the bottom, but a lot of times with some sort of decorative crust on the top. That's my cat who's decided to join the party. Her name is Chaos, and she enjoys spreading that all over. So hopefully she won't join us for too long here. Back to pie all around the world. So what American pie would sort of sound like in England is actually what they would call a tart, uh, typically. So something that is dessert and is served in that sort of under crust, not, not in a packaged situation. That's what they would think of American pie as. Whereas when we say tart in the U S we tend to think of something that's made in a very specific tin and a, in a tart dish, right. In a tart pan. So American pie, um, is really sort of an English tart, and then you also have pies that come from all over, all different, all different places of the world. But if you were to go somewhere that's not perhaps your home and you're trying to understand, you know, I'd really like a slice of apple pie, you'd better be a little bit more specific. I believe in free pie love, and I think you should make whatever type of pie you like with whatever type of pastry tickles your fancy. And I also think that it's great to try different kinds of pie. I think that a lot of people have an aversion to it um, simply because it's as my sister says, warm fruit. She's not into warm baked fruit. And that's absolutely fine. Baking itself is very subjective. That is something, oh, I meant to mention in the beginning is that I will be providing my opinions and my experiences and everything in this podcast. But I by no means, as I'm sure you know, are an authority on what is and isn't good. It's up to you. It is up to the mouth of the beholder, which is not a great phrase for it, but you understand where I 
trying to get at in in the taste buds in what you prefer what textures you like what textures you don't like what flavors you like for instance they were making trifles on on some episode of of gbbo and i was like that looks frankly disgusting i hate the idea of soaked sponge i've always had a small aversion to cream cheese frosting which we will discuss at length another time but it really is in the eye of the beholder so take everything anything with a grain of salt I made, for instance, two uh, lovely, I thought, birthday cakes for a five-year-old this year, a chocolate peanut butter one and a vanilla and raspberry one. And I thought they were quite good. And the dog even ate half of one of them and he thought it was quite good. And then I made a blueberry pound cake later this year, sort of a blueberry bunt pound cake. And she looks at me and goes, Addie, this is the first cake you've made that I liked. And that was a great feeling. So for those of you who felt the keen sting of the brutal honesty of a child, you are not alone. But anyway, back to free pie love. You can have whatever type of pie you like. I like many different types of pies. Like I said, we're going to focus a bit more on fruit pies today and how to avoid a soggy bottom, some strategies for that. And maybe someday we'll get to delve into this delightful little hand pie that I had in Edinburgh from this place called the Pie Maker, which was absolutely the best. It's like a vegetable, savory hand pie. It was so good. They also do a lot of meat pies over in the UK that are really good. I'm actually vegetarian, so I've never had a meat pie, but I've heard that they're very good. And in theory, I can appreciate that they're very good. Anyway, back to American fruit pies. We will talk a little bit about the history right now. So American fruit pies are actually not all that American at all. That is what I have learned from my research so far, is that American fruit pies really are an amalgamation of and sort of a an evolution of pies that come from other places, as many things in America are. And they have, since their inception here, developed into these wonderful regional specialties, which I would love to hear if any of you have sort of regional specialties that you'd like to share. I would love to hear what your family's made forever or what you had in a little diner in some place you visited that you thought was spectacular. But when we say, for instance, as American as apple pie, that phrase I have learned is actually pretty erroneous. So they... Most of the sources that I'm looking at, I have three sources that I'm kind of have drawn from here. One is one of my favorite cookbooks of all time, which is called Brave Tart by Stella Parks. I'm sure many of you who bake it all have heard of her and have read this book. One of the things that I love about what she does is she talks about the history. She's all these beautifully researched things. And she also talks about the science, which is the other part that I love. I'm a huge nerd for science of all kinds, especially baking science, also evolutionary theory and primates and bones. Um, I studied biological anthropology in, in college. So that's if, if a primate fact or two slips in there, you'll know why. But anyway, she loves to delve into where we get these things before she gives us these fantastic recipes. And then I'm also looking at a... A couple of articles. One is from the American Pie Council. I had no idea there was such a thing as the American Pie Council. It has nothing to do with the movie. I would actually really like to be a part of the American Pie Council. Um, their, their slogan, that's what it's called. Their slogan is grab a slice of life. You know what? Just do it. Just grab a slice of life. I love it. 
Don't know that they accept applications, but I'll have to look into that. Oh, they host the National Pie Championships, the Great American Pie Festival. Oh, there's amateur membership and professional membership and commercial membership. Well, anyway, if you're interested in the American Pie Council, there you go. I never knew it was real. So they have a short article about the history of pies that I looked at. And then there's also a Smithsonian Magazine article called Apple Pie is Not All That American that I'm looking at. So apparently, when we're looking at apple pie specifically, apple pie that we think of as American, that image was actually not solidified until the first couple of world wars in America, when everybody was really getting this nationalistic idea, what are we fighting for? What are we doing for America? And this phrase came up um, in an advertisement for suits, I think, a type of suits um, that said, new list suits that are as American as apple pie. And that sort of snuck into the vernacular, sort of snuck into the zeitgeist at the time. But really, there were no varieties of apples that grew naturally in the US that were suitable for pie prior to English settlers and colonists coming over and planting them. So when they arrived, they found that the only variety of apple that grew already naturally in North America was the crab apple, which as you can imagine, did not taste that good. I've never actually tasted a crab apple on its own. I only really know them from, there's a really great Scooby-Doo movie. I think it's a really great movie. It's called Scooby-Doo and the Ghoul School, and they eat all sorts of rotten vegetables and things, and they have crab apples there, which, anyway, that's an aside, but leads me to believe that crab apples are not that suitable for tasting. So anyway, they brought over their own apples, and they started to plant them mostly to make cider. So the original intention, they weren't, you know, the, the colonists weren't coming over and making a bunch of apple pies right off the bat here. They came over and they were making cider mostly because it was faster to make than beer, and they were planting apple trees that were particularly for that purpose. And it turns out apples are very easy to cross-pollinate. So relatively quickly, within the first couple hundred years of being here, because as you know, the colonists did not come here all that long ago in history. In fact, it was not their land to begin with at all and was lived on by many other people who were here first before that, but that's another podcast. But they came here and they started to grow all these different kinds of varieties until there were over 14,000 different varieties of apples that were growing in because they could choose exactly what they wanted. And it was very easy for them to cross-pollinate and create these different varieties. And you'll know this if you go to any, I mean, anybody who's been to a grocery store or a farmer's market and seen there's Granny Smith and there's Red Delicious, which by the way, I don't think Red Delicious is all that delicious. Maybe I'm alone here, but I think they're kind of mealy. I do. And it's, maybe that's just me. Anyway, all these different kinds of apples, right? I love pink ladies. You know, I really do. Gala's good too. Gala? Gala? Who knows? Anyway, they created all these different kinds of apples and many of them were still very tart in the beginning, more suitable for cider making. And that actually made them more suitable for pies as well. So actually the first cherry pie is credited to Queen Elizabeth I. And it seems like recipes for apple pies sort of started coming into England around the 14th, 13th century, apparently. But before these sort of fruit pies were abound, pies actually existed as containers for other things. So it wasn't about having this lovely golden crust and enjoying it. The crust, which was originally called coffin pastry, which is a little bit dark, which I actually kind of love about it. It was called coffin pastry because it was 
the entire intention of it was to carry what was in it. It wasn't really to bring any flavor or, or bring anything to the table besides literally bringing the food to the table, which I find totally fascinating. Eventually, that pastry was called something else, moved to be called crust or, or pastry or something else, but originally called a coffin. Spelled two ways. I saw it spelled with a Y and with an I. And I also had heard this in reading up on, it was actually written on the wrapper of a pie from the pie maker, which was that little shop in Edinburgh that I mentioned. They talked about how the original Cornish pasties were created with this sort of long crust on the outside, this sort of um, almost like a collar around the outside, because what that allowed you to do was eat your lunch without washing your hands. So all you had to do was hold on to that sort of widened crust, that sort of braided crust, and then you would throw it away like the rind of a cheese. You would eat the vegetables or the, the meat, whatever you had encased in the actual pastry part, and then throw away the part that you got all dirty, which I think is fascinating. So it wasn't until the past mm, maybe couple hundred years, 150 years, that the crust, the, the pastry really started to become a part of the dish. So there's a whole lot of history around that and all these different evolutions of different kinds of pies. But now I think when we say we want to make American pie and people get a little bit afraid, as I absolutely was and still get very nervous about sometimes, it's the crust, it's the pastry that scares us, I think. That's why pre-made pie crust is such a huge industry. It's a huge thing. You always say people, oh, I just buy pre-made. Oh, I just buy pre-made. And I'm in no way judging that at all. You do what you got to do to make get the pie made. But I do think that with a little bit of trickery, with a little bit of practice, with a little bit of knowledge, you can start to make up your own and have it really, it's really satisfying. It's really satisfying. And it's also, in my opinion, really, really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, when you're mad and you're therapeutic. Ah, there you go. It's therapeutic. It's super therapeutic. So um, I actually, the first time that I thought about that as scary, not scary, I was reading one of my other favorite, 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 I want her to be my best friend, Deb from Smitten Kitchen. She has an amazing blog and two incredible cookbooks. But in one of her recipes for pies, she talks about why is this the scariest part? Let's, let's figure out how to do this so that we don't have to be scared of it anymore. So coming into what that pastry is, what that crust is, we could spend hours, and I'm sure we will, talking about pastry, talking about all the different kinds of pastry. And I was really confused for a long time because I would look at all these different cookbooks and see completely different ratios of things going on. So pastry is very simple. It's made up of simple things, mostly flour, a fat of some kind. I'm not saying butter because you can use different kinds of fats and some sort of liquid to bring it together. That's the three things, flour, fat, liquid. So how can there be such a huge range of different recipes for this. I mean, with three ingredients, how different can you get? It turns out very different. And where those differences come in are on the ratios. So it comes, it goes all the way from one end where you have perhaps the lowest reasonable ratio of flour to fat. And then all the way up to the other end where you've got a whole lot of fat for as much flour as you have. So on one end, what they have is something called short crust pastry. And short crust pastry is so-called short crust because it has these shorter gluten strands in it. And that pastry is made with a ratio of about half the amount of fat as it is flour. So 
when you make it, it, it comes into that more bread crummy texture. There's not big lumps of butter in there. And a lot of times people recommend you just whiz it up with a food processor because what you want to do is get each one of those bits of flour really evenly coated with the fat. And then all the way on the other side, way, way past, you have things that are way more fat in there. So what you would eat, rough puff pastry, full puff pastry, what they call flaky pastry, is all on the other side where you might have as much as equal amounts of butter and flour. And then you also have varying amounts of liquid in there. Most people use water. Sometimes you use an egg to bring it together. A lot of people use vodka, um, not to make it delicious, just because vodka will evaporate more quickly in the oven and, and hopefully leave you with a crispier crust, I think is the idea. I've never really used vodka in my, in my pie crust. I don't find it necessary, but I'm not at all discounting what works for somebody else. But you have this whole range. And traditional American pies, quote unquote, tend to recommend a three to one ratio. So three parts of flour to two parts of fat to one part of water. And they all do different things. All of these different ingredients do different things as you are, as you're creating your pastry. So in short, and again, we will talk about this another time. In short, what the fat does, and I'm saying fat because we will have a long debate about butter versus shortening versus oil versus all the other things you can use versus lard what the fat does, it is in charge of a couple of things. It makes your pastry tender and it makes your pastry flaky. And we want both of those things, right? You don't want a tough crust on your pie. Nobody likes that. You want something that is going to melt in your mouth. That's going to be really delicious. But a lot of times you do need a little bit more structure and that's where the flour and the water come in. So the flour, of course, is, is a structural element. It's what creates the crust and the water is what binds and brings these things together. The water is also what is going to begin to, hello kitty, uh-huh, the water is also what's going to bring, oh I said that, bring everything together but also begin to activate the gluten network that's already in your flour. So that is what's going to give you some structure and allow you to create the actual pie or the actual pastry or whatever it is that you're looking to create. So you have to learn how to work with all these properties and kind of bring them together in a way that suits whatever your purpose is. And that's what I think is really fun because once you understand and you start to figure out what does what, what technique does what, what ingredient does what, you can have a lot of fun creating what it is that you want. And then of course from there you can add a little bit of sugar if it's for a sweet or something, add a little bit of salt, you could add some herbs if it's going to be savory, all sorts of fun stuff. But those are your three main ingredients that you're going to use. And then, of course, if you're making, um, I'm going to be so embarrassed because I was in ballet for so long and I should be able to pronounce these, but a, a pâté brisé or a pâté sucré, a lot of French pastry chefs incorporate eggs into theirs. And the eggs bring a little bit more of a custardy flavor, that sort of almost ice cream type flavor, which is, to be fair, a little bit hard to detect in a pie crust. I can certainly see how it would... Mm, it would complement certain flavors, perhaps if you have a creamier interior, that might actually bring really something nice to the table. If you've got a really strong interior, I don't think it'll bring that much to the table flavor-wise, but you might enjoy the structure. And if you, a lot of people add also a bit more acidity to their crusts. You'll see people going, oh, well, let's use sour cream. 
in our crust. And that will absolutely tenderize it. I've used Greek yogurt in, in pastry for galettes, the ones that you sort of fold over. But what it does, so it does prevent oxidization of the pastry. So it won't turn dark if you leave it in the fridge for a few days. And it tenderizes it, but it also might call, cause slumping. So, love that word. It might cause your pastry to slump down the sides of your tin if you're blind baking it. So keep that in mind. And then there's all sorts of techniques. So once you have your ingredients, once you've chosen your ratios, you've decided what you want to use, there are all different kinds of techniques to bring that together into your pastry, to make it into the crust for your pie. There's lamination. There's something, another French one that I'm going to horribly mispronounce, I'm sure, called frissage. I think <laughs> it's spelled F-R-I-S-S-A-G-E. And that's actually a French technique where you use the heel of your hand to smear the butter around and create some, some layers in there. And then there's, of course, keeping it cold, which is sort of universally agreed upon as one of the most important things, because what that does is keep your butter more solidified. It's less important when you're, when you're using short crust and you sort of whizzed it together, but it keeps your butter solidified so that when you put it in the oven into a hot oven, all the water in that butter evaporates and makes the lovely layers. And also rest. This is the other thing that's really important across the board that everybody seems to agree upon, regardless of their personal preferences for technique, for how they pull it together. They all agree that you need to let your pastry rest. As one of my other um, favorite cookbooks, I have many of them. The Magpie Bakery Cookbook from Philadelphia. So the Magpie Bakery actually did close down, I believe, a couple years ago. The owner decided... She had her adventure there and she wanted to move on to other things. I'm, I'm quite sad that I never got to go do it, but she wrote a fabulous cookbook of all her pies. And she talks about you need to give the pastry its beauty rest, which we all need. You know what? I need, I could use a lot of beauty rest. But anyway, that's another thing everybody seems to agree upon. And some people say, oh, it only needs half an hour. Other people say it's got to have eight hours. Try it out. See what you think. I've done it before with less rest, with an hour or two. I've done it overnight. Honestly, I don't know that in a fruit pie I've seen that much of a difference either way. But the resting allows the butter, number one, to re-solidify if it's gotten warm while you're working with it. Because you always let it rest in the fridge. And it also allows those gluten strands to relax a little bit. So you do need to work your pastry a little bit. I think a lot of people read always... These cautionary tales, don't overwork it, don't overwork it, don't overwork it. Don't, that's right, don't play with it for three hours like you're kneading bread. But it's okay to give it a little structure. Get in there a little bit, feel it, so that you can actually do something with it. So you're not just trying to hold together a pile of crumbs in, in your pan, and your tin, right? So it's up to you. Try all the different things. See what works. We'll talk about it at length another time. And we'll also talk about what type of fat is the best because this is a hotly debated topic, very hotly debated. People say shortening, people say butter, people say lard, people say some combination thereof. I tend to be on the all butter side, but I'm not married to that. I am happy to experiment and I will, but we'll have that debate on another episode. And let's go right into soggy bottoms, which is the other part of a fruit pie that tend to get people a little bit nervous. We will also talk about fruit thickeners in another episode because that's a whole other bit of chemistry that's really fun to talk about that I want to get into more, more intensely. But basically, when you make a fruit pie, right, you have your pastry, you typically have your fruit, 
some sort of liquid usually to get the fruit kind of started with its maceration with the sugar. And then you have, so a lot of times people use lemon juice, something like that, lime juice, a little bit of acid there to get everything moving. And then you have some sort of thickener. So again, this is what we'll talk about another time, but these are things like cornstarch, tapioca, flour, etc. So if you're mixing that together, you put it in your tin, you go to bake it, you pull it out, everything looks great, life's awesome, you pull it out and the bottom is a floppy little soggy bit of nonsense that everybody tries to avoid. That's not great. That is not what you want. I always get sad when I have a soggy bottom. I made a cherry and strawberry pie this summer that had a horrifyingly soggy bottom. And actually my dog ate most of that one. Somebody did eat the rest of it, but I knew looking at that bottom that Mary Berry would just have the most disappointed face in the world. And I couldn't stand it. And since then I had to make a couple of adjustments. What I found helps to prevent a soft undercooked, gross bottom. That's just a gut reaction. Sorry, not sorry. Is a few things. So typically what happens is that the, the liquid from your fruit is getting into your pastry before it even has a chance to cook. And then it's got no chance in the world of getting any part of it cooked well enough to be crisp. If you, I mean, think about putting your pastry in the oven and pouring water on the bottom and saying, okay, cook. That's probably not going to work, right? That's the exact same thing that happens. So the first thing you can do is blind bake it. You don't always have to. Most recipes don't say to. My personal rule of thumb, the thing that's helped me the most is to blind bake the pastry if at all possible. And that means you bake it with nothing in it. You put it in the tin, you put some pie weights on it or some beans. Pie weights are kind of a scam. I have found, I have a thing of pie weights and it does not fill out the whole pie tin. It's Anyway, and they were way more expensive than they should be. So I've heard you can just use sugar. You can use rice, all sorts of other things. Don't spend your money on pie weights or do. It's up to you. I, I feel like it was a small waste of money for me. Anyway, you can blind bake it and that will help the bottom crust just get started. Just get it going before you put any of that liquid on it. Other people like to then ensure it even further by putting a little bit of semolina on the bottom. Helps to absorb it. If they're making something savory, I've heard a little bit of ground rice on the bottom actually helps to absorb any of that extra moisture. Or some people actually also seal it. They use like a beaten egg white, kind of like an egg wash on the bottom to sort of make a little, a little sealed spot for it. But I found if you have the correct ratio of thickener, you've let your pie crust, you've let your pastry have a nice rest and you've blind baked it you'll be good to go. Another thing to mention is if you have the wrong pan, if you're using the wrong tin, it will not cook. I was using for ages the only one that I found in my parents' house, which was the glass pie pan. And I could not understand why so many times my bottom crust was not cooking. And I read online and they said, no, glass pie pans should be fine. And I'm like, well, maybe mine is defective. I don't know. But it was not working for me. And I would try, you know, preheating a baking sheet and putting it in there. I put it my, my rack all the way down to the bottom, which are two other strategies you can use, but it was not cooking through. So I finally gave in and I bought a couple of new tins because apparently I can do that. The wonders of the world. And I, I did a little Google search of what, what were the best tins that people recommended. And I found a couple from King Arthur that had a really good, um, really good reviews, really good sort of reputation. So I bought those and lo and behold, life changing, absolutely beautiful. Didn't fix everything, but when I did that in combination with the other strategies, 
I actually did not have a soggy bottom, even when I cut into the pie before it was ready because who's gonna, I mean, I understand it benefits from a rest in the fridge and letting the juices solidify all that, but I just want to eat the pie when it comes out. So I have cut into the pie when it's hot and it's juicy and all that good stuff. And the bottom crust has still been crisp, which is wonderful an absolutely wonderful feeling. So that was my other kind of revelation that I felt I had was that, oh, you could actually try a new tin that might work. So I really enjoyed um, being able to switch it up and experiment with that. But that is the ba- those are the basic ideas of maybe what you could try if you're feeling you're having some soggy bottom problems. And those have worked for some of the pies that I made this summer. I made a peach pie. I love a peach pie. And I actually did a jam on the bottom that was fresh raspberries and blueberries. Was it today? Blueberries in there? Oh, no, no, no. Raspberries and blackberries. And I made that into a quick jam and I put it on the bottom because the other thing that can happen with peach pies in particular, I find, is that if your peaches are not terribly good, because you can get peaches that just kind of taste like water and you don't know until you bite into them. Sometimes you can tell from the smell, sometimes you can't. And if you get a peach that just tastes like water, you could have the best technique in the world and your peach pie will just taste like water. But this jam that I put on the bottom, I felt really lifted the flavors in the peach and I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And I also cut out some stars. I'll put this up on the Instagram, but I cut out some stars out of the pastry to put them on top instead of doing a lattice or a double crust. And it made it feel so festive and I thought it made it taste better personally. Maybe that's just me. And then I also did an apricot pie with a crumble top. And I never worked with apricots before, but they we have two trees in our backyard and this house that um, I moved into this year and they dropped all their apricots at once, which was marvelous. They were so good. And I never made an apricot pie before. And I did that with a, a cinnamon sort of crumb topping, an idea that I got from the Magpie Bakery Cookbook. And that was really good and really, really delightful. And that one, they cautioned against the exact type of thickener that they thought you should use for your fruit, which again, we'll talk about another time. A little teaser for that is some fruits have more naturally occurring substances in them like pectin that, that want to solidify more. And actually you can use some fruits as thickeners for other fruits, which is like baking inception, which is really fun, but we'll get into that. But I'll post some of these pies that I made that worked And then, like I said, there was a strawberry cherry pie that just did not go as planned. I haven't found that I love to use strawberries in pies. I do love to use them in baking, in cakes, but I haven't loved them in pies. Maybe I need to try strawberry rhubarb. I've never done strawberry rhubarb before, but I've heard it's amazing. I've never really worked with rhubarb that much at all. But if if you've successfully used strawberries in pies and you really enjoy it, please let me know because I would love to get some recommendations for that. But anyway, that's basically it for episode one. That's that's my thoughts, some of my thoughts about pies. There are so many more thoughts that I have, the feelings that I have about pie that we can talk about in the future. Please let me know what you'd like to hear about, what you thought, if you enjoyed the history more, the chemistry more, what what would make you happy? I hope that my greatest hope is maybe that you'll listen to this while you bake and it will inspire you to create something that you can enjoy and you can have fun with and maybe inspire you to try something new. I'm certainly already getting inspired to try new things so that I have something to tell you about and to talk about. I will post everything that I was talking about, all these um, 
the articles that I looked up as well. So you can, you can check it out next time. We may or may not talk about pie again, might just mix it up and talk about something else. We'll see, but thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I hope you have an absolutely wonderful day, week and life. And as always, or for the first time, I suppose, bake it off.